Hello and welcome. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to America Can We Talk. Today's three stories, America's socialist experiment, epic fails in New York and at the Panera Bread Company. The red-green axis explains Representative Omar's anti-Semitism and save the persecuted Christians with our guest in studio, Frank Gaffney. And third, Mueller has nothing. Where do we go from here? Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. There was a story out today about the uh, census gathering data in 2018, and they study basically where people move in our country, what states people are moving out of, what states are moving into. And everything I talk about today is at our website, americacanwetalk.org. You go to the homepage, right under the blog, the uh, podcast, you can scroll down and it says LinkedIn or links here or something. You can read these stories yourself. But the short story is, there is a lot. there are a lot of Americans moving state to state. And although many reasons contribute, of course, to people moving, like jobs that move them, the bo- one of the most the hugest, biggest takeaways is this. People move away from tax states with high taxes. People move towards states with low taxes, and low taxes make better economies. Second point, and I'm going to get around to why I'm talking about this today. Second point is the Panera Bread Company started a policy a few years ago where they were offering free bread. They literally had, you know, Panera Bread is just a chain. It has bread and soup and sandwiches. But they would wrap their specially made bread, their special, I mean, and by means special, it's delicious in different flavors. And they had a sign out that said, pay what you can. Now you, you tell me, do you think, what, why, they ha- why do you think they had to end that? They ended it because all the bread disappeared and virtually no one wanted to pay. Panera Bread could not function on the honor system with people paying for bread what they felt like paying. There's a lesson about socialism I'm going to get to in just a moment. Third story relates to the state of New York. New York is complaining because they have an over $2 billion budget shortfall. Turns out that people don't want to stay in New York when the taxes are so high, so the wealthy ones are the ones who leave, the wealthy ones who commit the most, who pay the most into the tax system. This plays in all these stories into the 2020 election cycle. The Democrat Party has gone so far left, so openly socialist, not just the Green New Deal, which is itself socialist, and the its author, um, the... Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry, Representative Ocasio-Cortez, those people are openly advocating for socialism. And the three stories we just talked about are proof, you know, you hear people say, well, we're not going to be socialists like the people in Venezuela. They just didn't do it right. We're going to do it right in America. We can make socialism work, but they can't. Those three stories tell you socialism doesn't work. The Panera Bread story, when you make things that cost money to produce, and you make them free, people think they should take them for free, even people who could probably afford to pay for them. Imagine yourself, you're in a town, you've got rent to pay, you have food to buy, you have bills, and you go buy Panera Bread and you say, gee, free bread. Well, I do have $4 in my wallet, but on the other hand, you know, it is free. They didn't say, I'm not breaking the law, 
So you'll take it. That's what socialism does. People take free services that cost, or products that cost money to produce, they will take it for free. Same with the tax stories. People do not willingly surrender their hard-earned money. If they live in a place where they are told you must turn over more and more of your own money, they will move away. So in Washington, Democrats in Congress are worried. They're complaining about the idea that the far-left nature of not just the Green New Deal and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but many proposals, Cory Booker, one of the serious presidential candidates the Democrat side, signed on Green New Deal, talked the other day about how the government has to really crack down on how much meat people are allowed to buy and eat because it's not healthy. And so I'm telling you folks, this is a great opportunity for conservatives to speak up for what America is, to speak up for freedom, free markets, to point out how radical the Democrat Party is, force every alleged moderate Democrat to denounce the Green New Deal, denounce socialism, or vote them out. I'm Debbie George Addis, and this is America Can We Talk in My First Five. After the break, we come back. You'll be glad to hear someone who has a better voice than I do today. It's in studio with me, Frank Gaffney, my longtime friend, good friend, founder of the Center for Security Policy, current leader of the movement to save the persecuted Christians. We'll be talking with him about that movement and about Representative Omar's attack on her anti-Semitic language and her non-apology apology. Stay tuned. Three-second break to America Can We Talk. Welcome back to America Can We Talk. As I mentioned before, before I say that, I have a little bit of a cold today. When I woke up this morning, I had no voice at all. So this is like way better than hours ago. Not sounding great. I'll be better tomorrow. But I didn't want to miss a chance. I hate to miss a chance to talk to you every single day about preserving the most extraordinary, exceptional country on earth, the experiment in human liberty, America. Joining me in studio, thank goodness today, is Frank Gaffney, longtime friend, founder of the Center for Security Policy based in Washington. He was president and CEO of that organization for many years. He's now turned over that organization to be headed up by Fred Flights, another stellar American, and he's involved in Save the Persecuted Christian. So I'm going to start first of all saying welcome to the studio. Thank you. It's great to be in this spectacular new space. Congratulations. I love this studio. I just love it. Sorry about my voice. Okay, but I do want to go just to start right away with this. Uh, you left Center for Security Policy to go with an organization, or should really get a head up an organization, Save the Persecuted Christians. This is the one picture I sent to Matt, my happy producer. I have a picture from their website. And I want to just ask you, okay, look at that precious child. And the caption, why is the world silent while Christians are being slaughtered? So. I want to just have Frank tell us about what Save the Persecuted Christians is and what they do. Well, thank you for coming into the studio under the circumstances, Debbie. It's, uh, it's good to have a voice myself. It's been a little sporty here the past couple of weeks. Um, just to be accurate, I haven't left the Center for Security Policy. I have a <gasps> new role. I'm the executive chairman of for the center, but I am spending some of my time working on a new project which began, as you know, about a year ago, 
uh, under the auspices of something we called the Save the Persecuted Christians Coalition. The idea being to pull together as many people of you know, various faiths, of various denominations, of various backgrounds and skill sets and interests, but with a shared conviction that what is happening at the moment to staggeringly large numbers of Christians around the world just because they're Christians is unacceptable and needs to be addressed. And this coalition, interestingly enough, uh, was made up substantially of people who were already trying to do something about those Christians. Uh, they oftentimes were in the field, uh, trying to get them everything from water and food and medicine to clothing or shelter or refuge of some other kind in the face of efforts by governments and non-governmental terrorist organizations and the like to force them to give up their faith or to otherwise submit to somebody else's program, a faith program of typically Sharia supremacism, as I call it, or alternatively, you know, communism under the Chinese or the North Koreans or what have you. What we came together with a realization about was that it wasn't enough. Important as that kind of work was, and, and courageous as it often had to be, going behind enemy lines to try to provide that kind of relief, still it was, when I think of it as, as symptomatic relief. And the trouble was, the patient had cancer. It wasn't a question of putting bandages on to make the wound feel a little better. It was that there is a dying patient because the persecutors are intensifying their efforts. Um, in fact, there's an organization that we've worked with called Open Doors USA. Mm -hmm. Open Doors has done great work in trying to depict the problem with persecution of Christians around the world. And they calculated in 2018 that the numbers that were being afflicted, and I'm not talking to be clear about people who, you know, have people say nasty things to them or have difficulties finding jobs or have bad days because they're Christian. I'm talking about people who are being tortured, who are being raped, who are being sold into slavery of one kind or another, who are being crucified or murdered, even genocidally. That's happening now, according to Open Doors. No correction, that last year was happening, according to Open Doors, to about 215 million Christians. And this year, in the analysis that they just released last month, they estimate it's closer to 245 million. Now, when you think about it, that number dwarfs what Paul Pott and mm -hmm. Adolf Hitler and yep. Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong did combined in terms of the loss of life. And fortunately, not all of these Christians have lost their lives yet, but that's what's in prospect. So we've come together to build a grassroots movement we call Save the Persecuted Christians in the hope that we can do something unique and additive to try to address not just the symptoms of the problem, 
but to treat it systemically, specifically by holding the persecutors accountable and creating real costs to them for what they're doing to Christians around the world. And we have some encouragement, not least because Donald Trump Mm-hmm. has recently applied precisely these techniques in a very micro case, to be sure, but in Turkey to help free an American pastor by the name of Andrew Brunson from the barbarism and and imprisonment and, you know, potentially mortal peril imposed by the Turkish government and the practice that we're talking about, holding the persecutors accountable creating costs to them for what they're doing, it worked. He's free, and um, we believe it can work on a much larger scale as well. That was a great description. You know, when you said those numbers, I was thinking when you were speaking, that's about two-thirds of the population of America. Hmm. The number of people under severe threat of persecution in this world today, about two-thirds of the entire American size, two-thirds of the American population. Yeah. I also remember, we talked about this, I don't, I'm not sure when it was, but that when you study the countries of where this is occurring, <clears throat> sorry, where it's occurring, I think the top 10 countries were listed. Two of them are communist, and so it was just communist intolerance of Christianity. And the remaining were Islamic majority countries where the pressure was coming. It is truly directly religiously based, a preference over for Islam over Christianity. And it's a very, very hard thing to bring to bear pressure on those kind of groups because in communism and Islamic majority countries, what's occurring is, is in some degree socially acceptable. It mm-hmm. kind of goes with the territory. So I love what President Trump did in Turkey, but what? how can you do that? I love this. I'm, these are genuine. I don't know how you're going to do this. Mm. What kind of things can you do? Well, it's a question to some extent of what the calculations of people who engage in this kind of behavior are, as you say. For some, it's a matter of ideology. For some, it's a matter of theology. For some, it's a matter of what they consider to be what they need to do to survive their regime. I mean, in yeah. North Korea, uh. for example, there there's a special kind of hell in a country in which everybody's badly treated for Christians because they dare to believe that there is a God other than Kim Jong-un. Exactly. And this is, as you say, at the core of the problem. And yet, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, a Islamist through and through, a Sharia supremacist, a man who seeks to create a new Ottoman Empire out of Turkey. And that means conquering other parts of the the region and building afresh an Islamic caliphate. He calculated that it wasn't worth it to do this to this individual because the costs in terms of both personal accountability as well as sanctions on steel, sanctions on aluminum that Donald Trump imposed on his country at very considerable cost to it. Well, at some point, it came to be too much. and. I'm not here to tell you that I know what that point is going to be in every case, or even if we can achieve it in every case. But I think there's a possibility. And, and you know, Debbie, if I can, there's, a, there's a, a story to this that I think is also 
inspiring. <coughs> Bless you. In part, this campaign to save persecuted Christians was inspired by an earlier effort mm -hmm. to spare another religious minority from great, great persecution. It was called uh, the Soviet Jewish community in yeah. the old Soviet Union. And it began, the campaign to help them began in the most unlikely of ways. Um, a couple of Jewish activists in Cleveland, Ohio, back in the 1960s, were trying to do something about the persecution of their co-religionists in the Soviet Union, who were being put into gulags and and subjected to pogroms and yeah. you know suffering in mental institutions and the like. And what these guys were reduced to doing, because as you've heard me say. Al Gore hadn't invented the internet at that point. <laughs> and, you know, religious broadcasting wasn't what it is today. Yeah. And most especially, the government of the United States at the time was very much determined to try to support the Soviet Union, not criticize it, not uh, yeah. hold it accountable. <clears throat> so for all these reasons, they found themselves essentially reduced to just putting up signs outside of synagogues and, and some churches to try to elevate the issue that Jews were being persecuted in the Soviet Union and that it needed to be stopped. Flash forward, this caught on. It became a movement, a real grassroots movement, and it translated into political power in the sense that a fellow that I wound up working for by the name of Senator Henry Scoop Jackson from mm -hmm. Washington State, tried to take this movement, this political force, and turn it into basically a veto-proof piece of legislation called the Jackson-Vanik Amendment. Why is that important? Because what the Jackson-Vanik Amendment was about was creating costs to the Soviet persecutors by saying, unless you let the Jews and anybody else out of the Soviet Union who wishes to go, you will not get something, it turns out, they not only wanted but desperately needed, which was a kind of economic lifeline known as most favored nation status. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And MFN, as it's been called, would have made possible all kinds of other benefits to the Soviets. They would have given them effectively a financial safety net in the form of trade and investment and credit guarantees and technology mm -hmm. transfer and the like. And it was absolutely imperative that they get that kind of help because the old creaky, you talked at the opening about socialism, there was another example of it. It doesn't work. It was failing, and they were desperate to prop it up. But they were even more desperate not to lose control. So they yeah. wouldn't let the Jews out. They wouldn't let anybody else out. They didn't get most favored nation status. And several years later, in the absence of that financial safety net, this other fellow I had the privilege of working for, Ronald Reagan, other came fellow. along and he said, I'm going to take down the Soviet Union, the evil empire. Mm -hmm. And he did it first and foremost through the use of economic warfare that went directly <clears throat> at the vulnerability that had been intensified by the fact that they didn't get most favored nation status. So in other words, it's a long story, but the point it's is- It's a great story though. Miraculously, <clears throat> this truly is a miracle.
as a friend of mine here said, a couple of guys with signs brought down an empire. A couple of guys with what? Signs brought down an empire. And they did it in the most unlikely of ways. I think the hand of God was a big factor, to be honest with you, and and Ronald Reagan, Scoop Jackson, and so on. But at the end of the day, Debbie, if we could do that with, yes, to be sure, one country, but it was thought to be the most powerful country on the planet at the time, the Soviet Union, what could we do to help address the plight of millions of people in two-bit countries that you know desperately want our aid or our military sales or our you know uh, political legitimacy <clears throat> or otherwise are susceptible to pressure and here's the really important point as i said about president trump and andrew brunson not only do we have the internet today to help tell these stories uh, not only do we have broadcasting outlets like yours and and religious and others but we have a president and we have yeah. a vice president and we have a secretary of state and we have a national security advisor and we have an ambassador at large for international religious freedom donald trump mike pence mike pompeo john bolton sam brownback who are profoundly convicted on the importance of saving persecuted christians around the world so I think there's all kinds of possibilities here. It's ultimately in God's hands to be sure, but particularly if people like your audience want to know how they might be able to help, I encourage them to go to our website, savethepersecutedchristians.org, contribute if you can, become part of this movement, and help us build the kind of pressure that might just save who knows how many millions of lives of Christians around the world. I just love that was a great hey my voice is back that was a great description that was so so helpful you know when you look at this problem standing back back from it you realize whether it's the communist countries targeting christians or islamic majority countries who are intolerant of christianity both those ideologies seem impossible to penetrate and to logically talk out of their their opposition to christianity so it's a great thing what you're saying is we're not even going to try we're not going to reason we're not going to we're just going to make it impossible for you we're, in any way we can legally, but I mean, <clears throat> sorry, impossible for you to continue your persecution. I love that you're, yeah. you don't. I mean, you, it's, you can't negotiate with them to cause them to be more open-minded, but you can put pressure on. So the best choice they have is to stop what they're doing. I love right. that. Well, it, it it may be possible to negotiate with them. We'll see. But you've got to change the calculation from yeah. what it is today, which yeah. is that they can do this with impunity. And they can get away with it for whatever reason they engage in it, whether it's domestic control or whether it's advancing their ideology or Sharia supremacism or what have you. But it's worked before. That's the key point. And it might work again. And and what's the alternative to to have 300 million next year, 500 million people? And and Debbie, I just I want to, again, impress upon this very thoughtful audience this is happening on our watch right this isn't some ancient historical phenomenon and it's happening on a scale that is simply unimaginable we must do what we can so the website is say the persecuted christians.org correct 
I went through that today. I was going to tell our listeners is it's this the picture we had up came from that website. But then if you scroll down, there really are because I know many of our listeners are are Bible believing Christians, there or people of the Jewish faith who embrace the Bible. One thing that scrolls across the bottom are a series of scriptural passages that just they both inspire you to think this is my job. This is part of my job as being a Christian in, in today's world. That, that God's hand is help is helping, is there to help us, to, to direct us, to move this along. It really is a very, very inspiring website and project. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that all the scriptural passages you put in there. Well, there's a, a lot of great people who are helping inform that. I had, I had one pray over me yesterday reading Ephesians 6, which really captured the whole spirit of what this is about and up armoring in order to do battle against these enemies of uh, the faith. And it's, it's, it's truly God's work, I believe. I love that. Just love it. Okay, while I have you in studio, I love we talked about that. And I will say I, to our listeners, when I was introducing Frank a moment ago, I did a very cursory job and even an incorrect job. So he, first of all, is still very much involved with the Center for Security Policy. He founded it. In fact, when he told me several months ago, he was thinking about leaving the center and, and, and handing off, or he's leaving the presidency and the CEO and handing that off to someone new. My, my reaction was kind of, but you are of the Center for Security Policy. I mean, you, he founded it, he grew it, developed it. It's a fabulous organization in Washington, committed to national security, committed to great policy thinking, uh, all sorts of involvement at the state and federal levels in inspiring people to understand the threats we face, how to handle them, how to identify them, how to handle them, what our choices are. And his time working as a young man in the Ronald Reagan administration taught him a lot about the need paralleling the challenges we face today. What President Reagan was saying back at the time we were fighting communism, you have to fight at every level. At every, you can't just wait for the military battle and recognizing the way that countries are challenged. Um, we can fight back and defend America uh, in many roots, including economically and through propaganda. So it's a great organization. Fred Flights, if there ever was someone, truly a great person to take over for you, it is he, and he's taken it over. Um, but one thing that's on the Center for Security Policy website, I want to talk with you about a little bit. There's been a lot in the news recently about the Democrat Congresswoman from Minnesota, Ilhan Omar, mm-hmm. who made some very ugly anti-Semitic statements. And I should say, many, many, many times. Finally, she made recent anti-Semitic statements, and even the Democrat leadership called her out and said, you know, they denounced it, we don't talk like that, blah, blah. And she issued an apology, which did not seem particularly apologetic to me. And President Trump has called on her to step down. But you talk on on the Center for Security Policy website. I I mean, you back up. I think people hear her, and they know she happens to be a member of the Muslim faith, and she's a member of Congress, and they don't necessarily connect her anti-Semitism with her faith, whether the, whether the teachings of the of Islam, in Islam, the Quran, the teachings today in many mosques and, and imams around the world, um, whether it is fair to connect her anti-Semitism with her Islamic faith. And you also talk about this website, the red-green axis. So mm. that was a mouthful to say, given your unbelievably expansive knowledge relating to Islam, is it fair to say that there is within the core of Islam's teaching an encouragement of anti-Semitism. I talk a lot, as you know, Debbie, about Sharia mm-hmm. because I think it's kind of the the connective tissue, the the DNA, yeah. if you will, the doctrine of Islam that the authorities of the faith insist 
is the true Islam. But the reason I mention it and focus on it is I'm quite certain that there are lots of Muslims, including I think a great many in this country, who don't practice their faith in accordance with Sharia. So when one generalizes, I think it's important to help the audience especially understand that distinction. And here's how it operates is I believe that there's no getting around the anti-Semitic character of Sharia, of the Quranic, uh, you know, denunciations of Jews as apes and pigs and uh, uh, the famous uh, call that the, the Muslim will um, be uh, appealed to by the rocks and trees to come because there's a Jew hiding behind them, come and kill him. I mean, these are things that are not uh, possible to ignore and have in fact been enshrined in Sharia. And where you have Sharia supremacists, and I think Representative Ilan Omar is one, unmistakably, they cannot help themselves but exhibit this kind of intolerance and enmity uh, and anti-Semitism, to be sure, but for that matter, this, uh, this very deep hostility to the Jewish state of Israel as well. Right. And what I'm struck by, and you know, it was an interesting morning. You woke up without a voice in mine. My day began with an interview with Breitbart Radio. And uh, I just happened that the segment before mine featured an interview with, um, uh, I think it's Oliver Lane from their bureau in mm -hmm. London. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and he was talking about uh, a very interesting criticism by Tony Blair, the former prime minister of Britain, uh, former head of the Labour Party, uh, in which he took on his successor, the present head of the Labour Party, Jeremy sure. Corbyn, for engaging in anti-Semitism. And I observed that, you know, the truth of the matter is, Jeremy Corbyn has been an anti-Semite, as many on the left have been forever. This is not new. What's different in Britain, and what is a cautionary tale for us, is that, interestingly enough, as a direct result of what Tony Blair did when he was in office, which was to change the demographics of the British electorate by allowing millions of people, many of them from South Asia or other Sharia supremacist parts of the world, to come to the United Kingdom and take up residence and ultimately become citizens and voters. And so the point is, just as in Britain, where you now have a red-green axis, the red of the hard left and the green of the Islamists, making common cause to win parliamentary majorities if they can, and to find in each other's shared vision of the world common ground on things like their hostility towards Jews and Israel and you know the, uh, the idea of Zionism. Just as that's happening in the United Kingdom, it's happening in America too. We're not quite as far along, thank God, but the demographic phenomenon that gives rise to this is operating. 
as you know, we've talked about it many times, what uh, Barack Obama did to bring in large numbers of Sharia adherent Muslims into this country. He's changing the, not only the demographics in certain areas, but also the politics. Hence, Representative Omar is now representing a district in Minnesota, um, and she is actively promoting as part of the red-green axis agenda in America, anti-Semitism as part and parcel of her Sharia supremacist program, but also, frankly, of this campaign to transform, fundamentally transform, as Barack Obama used to say, the United States of America as well. That was a great description in this red-green axis term. Um, I think people can watch this situation in America or anywhere and say, well, gee, you know, the Islamists want Islamic supremacism. They want, they want to have Sharia supremacism enforced. They want to spread the idea that Sharia must replace um, Western law, our whole rule of law concept. And that is, you know, that's a really, it's a religiously based motivation. And the, social, the socialist in this country or the left in this country, they just want big government. They want to control whether you can, have, if you're Cory Booker, whether you can have meat, they want to control everything about your life and the healthcare system and the banking system, the education system. They want centralized control. They seem like different agendas. I mean, one's religion, one's just a big government. But it is unmistakable in America that this red-green axis exists, that they have locked arms, they defend each other. I think Ilhan Omar has come out in favor of the Green New Deal. I'm pretty mm -hmm. sure she has. I think so. And, I mean... It's just an odd combination, strange bedfellows, but you start to wonder what would happen. Just, I mean, if the Sharia supremacists got their way and they actually were able to bring Sharia to America, aren't a lot of the constituent groups who support the left in this country then going to become the targets of the Sharia supremacists? Yeah, that's a very good point. Of course, the whole Sharia program is absolutely antithetical to the kinds of freedoms that we enjoy in this country. It is hostile in the extreme to women, to homosexuals, to Jews, as we've been talking about, to apostates, to artists, to songwriters. I mean, you go on and on down the list, and it turns out most of those are key constituencies of the left of the Democratic Party and of uh, you know the, the red part of the red-green axis. So this will come to blows at some of point, course it will. inevitably. Yeah. Yes. And the short-sightedness of the feminists and the homosexual community and the Jews and so on to this reality is staggering and, and shocking, really. But let, if I could just make one clarification. Part of the reason I focus on Sharia is I don't think of it so much as a religion, as a totalitarian, political, legal, and military doctrine. And that has a lot more in common with the left than it might otherwise seem. In fact, I, I think of this as really communism with a god that has been enshrined. That's a great term, communism with a god. Yeah. Enshrined in Sharia. And so. When it comes down to control, when it comes down to denying freedom, when it comes down to dictating how other people are going to live their lives, the hard left 
and the Islamists have an awful lot in common, as it turns out. And their differences will be resolved in a very bloody way in due course. Absolutely. You know, I said in the show many times, we talked about Sharia in the past, how you do hear people in America thinking they're trying to be their open-minded and they're, they love our First Amendment, love religious freedom. And we have, you know, the Jews have the Ten Commandments and the Christians have the Gospels and the Sermon on the Mount and the Jews just, and the Muslims just want Sharia. So Sharia is kind of their thing. And the, just as the Ten Commandments are for the Jewish people and, for, and the Gospels are for the Christians. Just another great Abrahamic faith. Right? right. And it's just another series of beliefs. You know, they may do a different ritual at their house and you do at your house on, on holidays. And they think that's what Sharia is. So I'm glad you expanded, expounded mm. both mm. on what Sharia is because it is an utter, it's an utter worldview. It's a, it's a, it's complete a complete way of life, as they say. Complete way of life. Yes. That was actually... I, saw that in one of the, the um, websites it was trying to explain in a friendly way what Islam is. Sharia is a complete way of life. It is control over every aspect of life. Mm-hmm. And the other, other aspect of this, I often try to remind people, contrary to Western civilization, is we have elected government in America. So if you have Congress pass a law and you decide that is, or you have the leftists pass something socialist, the way around it is, well, next time around, I'm going to vote differently. I'm going to find someone who agrees with me. I'm going to get a different majority in Congress, and we're going to change this. The thing with Sharia is there's no recourse. There's no way to reverse it. Mm -hmm. The interpretation, the application is all held in the hands of the Islamic scholars, the imams, the leaders of the of the Islamic faith. There's no recourse. And it's supposed to have been locked down, you know, back in 1200 or so. So, I mean, this is not uh, susceptible to reform right, or can't. to, uh, as you say, to uh, modification in ways that, uh, that can make it less of a threat to everybody else. And by the way, I say that I want to emphasize a threat to Muslims as well. Those Muslims who came to America, in many cases, I believe, to get away from Sharia in their native lands are as much at risk of being subjected to this as are the rest of us. And, you know, one of the great disservices that we do when we engage in this kind of, you know, accommodation or appeasement of these supremacist Sharia adherent Muslims, is we are making it vastly more difficult for their co-religionists who don't want to be under Sharia, who don't want to take our freedoms, who don't want to force us to submit to their program and what have you, to stand with us against them. That's a terrible strategic mistake and one I don't think we can persist in doing any longer. I love that. Frank Gaffney, I'm so glad you're available today. Me too. And listeners to America Can We Talk, I had another segment I was going to do, but to spare you my voice, I'm going to put it off until tomorrow, and I will be back tomorrow. I want to mention a couple of things to our listeners. Uh, first, tomorrow we'll, I'll be out of town, but I'm doing the show um, from a, I'm going to a political conference, but I'll be doing the show from the hotel. So I'm, we're going to try this great experiment. My incredibly wonderful producer, Matt, we did a test run. We believe it's going to happen. Uh, but and I hope we can do it from the hotel. I will tell you. I wanted to, start to hit on today, really, what has come out in Washington related to the Mueller investigation, which I said in the start. Mueller has nothing. What that should mean to a law-abiding country. What that should mean to the Democrats. What that should mean to the media. What it should mean to the American people. When we're down to now, February 2019, millions of dollars spent. 
nothing at all in the slightest uncovered that connects Donald Trump with Russian collusion. The Senate Democrats and the Senate Intelligence Committee acknowledging can't find a darn thing after digging for a year and a half. And, you know, the analogy I'll make, and I'll leave this for you for tomorrow, what the Democrats did, the leaders within the FBI, the Department of Justice, and this most corrupt scandal in American history, what those people did was a little bit analogous to someone driving drunk, causing a horrific accident, hurting people, blaming the other side, and the investigation is finally over and the police look into it and they realize, you know what, this was all caused by the drunk driver. The other person hit was completely innocent. In our society, we don't say, okay, turns out this innocent guy didn't do anything wrong. We don't just drop it. We look to, what did this drunk driver do? We hold him accountable, criminally and civilly, and in our culture and in our media. We need to hold the people inside the FBI and Department of Justice who foisted this Trump-Russia collusion hoax. A long list of people, I'm gonna tell you about them tomorrow, who need to be held liable, at least civilly, definitely criminally. We need to have an investigation done by the hopefully new Attorney General inside his new Department of Justice and bring those people to justice. Because if we don't, just like with a drunk driver, he's going to drunk drive again. They need to be held responsible, criminally responsible. They need to be investigated and prosecuted or else we are surrendering our rule of law to to the, the radical extreme cabal that runs the, the left wing, the Democrat Party in America today, the left wing America. We need to stand up. I'll tell you about more tomorrow when I can talk a little better. Thank you for tuning in to America Can We Talk. If you're watching on Facebook, please like this page. Please review it. Please share it. If you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe on YouTube. And if you want to email me, don't email me that I talk too fast or that my voice didn't sound good today. Besides that, you can email me at americacanwetalk at gmail.com. Talk to you tomorrow and every Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time. Thanks for listening. Can We Talk? Truth About America.